Once upon a time there was an engineer. Choo-choo Charlie was his name we hear. He had an engine and he sure had fun. He's good and plenty candy to make his train run. Charlie says, love my good and plenty. Charlie says, really rings the bell. Charlie says... This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And you were listening to the uh, Good and Plenty theme song. That was my favorite snack. My parents would give it to me at the end of the week when I'd been a good boy. And I loved that song, and I loved the soft Good and Plenty. I hated the hard ones. I hated the old ones. I loved the fresh ones. And, well, today's piece is from Heidi Mitchell. And, by the way, we had a great segment with her on tickling last week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look up the tickling segment. It was fabulous. And, well, she had the burning question column, and last week she was on with us about that tickling. This week, her latest piece of art, Which Foods Make the Best Bedtime Snack? And uh, for me, it was always good and plenty. Uh, that's what I love to eat right before I went to bed. It's what I love to eat any time of the day, frankly. <laughs> Heidi, is this really a burning question? That's what we want to know. <laughs> well, my burning question is, is licorice genetically loved or disloved? Because mm. I don't, I can never eat those good and plenty. But yes, my my late night snack is ice cream, as I'm sure many Americans are. Oh, you still good doing one. good and plenties? That's a good. Oh, I still. I, I yes, my wife. I have a stash all over the house. Any time is good. <laughs> Any time is good. It's just my. You know, Ronald Reagan, as you know, it was jelly beans all the time. He had them everywhere near him. So that was his favorite right. snack, not just bedtime. Some people just have that one thing. Uh, but uh, what, now what, what led you to this column, Heidi? What was, the, what, was, what was on the mind when you wrote it? Well, I, like I said, I am, I'm a late-night snacker. I'm really good at starving myself all day, and then just I can't take it anymore, and I just go for cheese and <laughs> chips and, and ice cream. So I wanted to know what was, what was driving that. So I spoke to Dr. David Ernest, and what was super interesting about him, he's at Texas A&M Health Science Center, and he studies body clocks. But yeah. He had this great thought, which I never really thought of, which is that you know, we're working these ridiculous hours, right? All of us are on this 24-hour day work schedule. And so we skip meals. Now, someone like me, I'm just trying to keep my weight in check, so I'm skipping meals. But then, you know, come the end of the day, we need a little bit of energy. And so what that snacking, he says that late-night snacking isn't even really snacking. It's meal replacement for so many people. So I was curious about that. I thought that was really interesting. You know, in the piece, you wrote, quote, but then after 11 p.m. or midnight, you're hungry. Dr. Ernest said, so what you're doing is not really snacking. You're replacing a normal meal with something quick and easy to consume. So this is the, this is the post-dinner dinner is basically what you're saying. Right, exactly. And if, especially if your day is stretching on past, you know, 17 hours or so, you know, you kind of need that fourth meal or you skipped a meal and so you're just super hungry. And so, you know, it is sort of it's either an extra meal because you got to get more energy or it's the meal you skipped because you were so busy during lunch that you didn't have it. You had, and, and you're not going to cook a healthful meal late at night, right? So you're yep. going to eat whatever's readily available. And marketing companies are very good at enticing us with packaging and delicious, good and plenty. And then there's always, of course, that you're not hungry at all and it's 1030 at night and you can't go to sleep and you want to catch up with your favorite AMC series. So you go downstairs and you open up the fridge and you get everything out of there and you just keep eating until you fall asleep, which is occasionally <laughs> oh, what is I do. Best. Isn't that the, the best? best? I can eat a whole pound of cheese. 
standing up at the counter. At well, we, we, we really cannot terrible. get together. I think uh, th- th- it wouldn't end well. We'd both be in a sugar coma, <laughs> and the cops would have to haul us off in body bags. Heidi, so it sounds to me like you were wondering whether other people had this weird habit that you had. That's what it sounds like it was going on there. Yes, I think that was the impetus for this week. I we'll think see how so. next week goes. I think so, too. So, yeah, why do- so what's interesting is that that, that craving for you know high-protein, high-fat food late at night, it's actually it's, it's fine to eat. You know, it's not great, but it's fine to eat that stuff during the day, but it's worse for you at night. So let's get to that, though. That What's the time? I mean, we're now turning this from a fun thing into a health thing, which we hope we're not scaring the <laughs> listeners, okay? Because we don't want to talk about health too often, um, and this isn't a health segment. But why does eating certain foods at certain times of the day produce different results? In other words, why should we be eating some things earlier and some things later? And why maybe we shouldn't eat anything later? Well, so, you know, so if you're a night owl and you're trying to push through, you know, you want some high energy food and your body, your body will take it and, and it'll run with it. It really, your body, you know, it's on a clock, right? So, so it wants to wake up in the morning, be filled with like all kinds of yummy, heavy foods and push you through the day. But at night it wants to start winding down and we're wired that way for millennia, right? Or yep. hundreds of thousands of years. So, so then if you, if you eat that stuff late at night, well, then you're jolting your body back up to life, right? So you're, you're supposed to be winding down, but instead you're like, no, I'm going to eat that bag of delicious salt and vinegar chips. And now your body's like, oh, right, it's time to wake up. So then you're alert and your body, all the stuff goes into, your metabolism goes into action, all stuff happens internally. And, um, and it's just not good for your body clock. You're totally messing with yourself. Yep, yep. And by the way, it says here that maybe later at night you might want to think about eating things like cherries or bananas or a pineapple, and I can only tell you this doesn't work for me because what I do is I get the, I get that two-pound bag of Bing cherries and I wipe them out, and right. then I'm on a raging sugar high at like two in the morning. But you know, moder- I guess moderation is the key to everything, Heidi. What's your broad takeaway from researching bedtime snacking? What's the relationship between how we eat and how we sleep? Well, you know, you sh- you should stop eating. Or, you know, about eight o'clock. But with, what I thought was super interesting was that what you eat like 12 hours before has an impact on what you're, what happens to you later on. So this, this doctor, I think this is pretty fun. He said, if you eat something high in omega threes, like salmon, for example, um, at say at lunch, eat that at lunch. And then at night you go for your mad men binge fest slash tub of Ben and Jerry's. Yep. You might be okay. You might be canceling out the bad fat protein stuff that's in all the ice cream right and instead it's all going to be okay because we eat that salmon at lunch only if you indulge occasionally (laughs) you can't live your life this way every day yep well heidi we always appreciate what you write at the wall street journal and which foods make the best bedtime snack this is lee habib this is our american stories go to our website better still go to the wall street journal and catch the article thanks so much for joining us heidi And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this.
Yeah. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions. And that keyboard in the background that's holding everything together is the Hammond M3. For you music fans, you probably knew that. For those of you who didn't, well, you're about to hear a story. Because on this day in history, Lawrence Hammond was born in 1895. He was an American engineer and inventor, and his inventions include, most famously, the Hammond organ, the Hammond clock, and the world's first polyphonic musical synthesizer. But where does the history begin? Well, it all began in Evanston, Illinois. Hammond organ history begins here, in Evanston, in the 1920s, in the workshop of an ambitious young inventor named Lawrence Hammond. But the organ was not Hammond's first or last invention. By the time he died, he had 110 patents. In 1922, for example, Hammond invented 3D movies. A few years later, he was the first to market an accurate electric clock. The Hammond Clock Company was a huge success. But by 1932, there were lots of electric clock manufacturers, and Hammond was losing money. He needed a new product. But a musical instrument was not a likely choice. He was the most non-musical person out there. He got into this whole thing primarily because he needed a gimmick to keep the company going after the bridge table ran out. Before the Hammond organ, there was the Hammond electric bridge table. Just load in a deck and the table automatically shuffles and deals your cards. Even with the Great Depression raging, Hammond sold 14,000 bridge tables in about two years. The problem was that when he got into 1933, he needed something different. And that's where the organ came in. Hammond found that the same synchronous motor that he used to keep accurate time could make a musical tone that never needed tuning. But Lawrence Hammond wasn't trying to make an organ. He just saw this as another gimmick that would make a few tones and, he hoped, a lot of money. One of his employees happened to be his accountant was a church organist, a pipe organist. And he basically said, why don't we just build a complete organ? After two years of development, Hammond got the patent in 1934, and in 1935 unveiled a prototype of the Hammond Model A. It was such an immediate hit that he had 1,400 orders even before he went into production. And he began production in this building near Western and Diversity on the north side. Among the first to order were George Gershwin and Henry Ford. But most Hammond organs were going to churches. There was a 
They marketed it as a substitute for a pipe organ. In reality, it, it really wasn't. But it certainly was close enough. And, and many, many churches bought it. The pipe organ manufacturers knew a threat when they saw one, and they complained to the Federal Trade Commission. Hammond's new instrument had no pipes, they said, and therefore should not be called an organ. So, in March of 1937, the Federal Trade Commission sponsored a showdown, a blind comparison between a $2,600 Hammond Model A and a $75,000 Skinner pipe organ. A panel of experts was assembled at Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago, and they guessed wrong a third of the time. And so, the Hammond got to be called an organ. Sounding that close to a pipe organ requires the Hammond to produce an astonishing variety of tones. Inside the organ, it has something to do with what they call tone wheels, notched discs spinning near magnets. But for the Hammond player, the magic is in these draw bars. Somehow, the draw bars combine simple tones into richer sounds. And the best way to hear it is we'll pull these out one at a time and push just one note. So actually when you push that note down, you've got these pulled out, you're actually playing a chord. But you don't notice it because it's actually just a harmonic thing. So when you pull them all out, you're playing every single sound you could possibly get out of, the, all, out of these nine drawbars. In the beginning, Hammond wasn't thinking about popular music. They were going after the pipe organ market. Churches, theaters, stadiums, broadcasters. Among the first to adopt it, radio soap operas. Yes, Ma is hoping against hope that she'll find that good in Stella, which she so firmly believes exists in everyone. But popular musicians did find their way to the Hammond organ. Within a few years, Fats Waller recorded jazz on a Hammond. Soon, so did Count Basie. That was super, Miss Smith. Now let's really get hot. Yeah. Let's go below the border for some South American jive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, kiddies. <laughs> But the musician who may have done the most to bring the Hammond into popular music is now mostly forgotten. Her name was Ethel Smith, a former hotel organist. When she appeared in this 1944 Red Skelton Esther Williams movie, Bathing Beauty, the song Tico Tico became an international hit. And Ethel Smith became the first lady of the Hammond organ. Soon she and the Hammond were everywhere, and everyone, it seemed, wanted to play one. Well, it didn't take Lawrence Hammond long to notice this untapped home market, and in 1949, he came out with the first spinet organ.
That same year, Hammond moved to 4200 West Diversity into an old Al Capone beer warehouse. Within six years, the Spinet had outsold all previous models. And Hammond Promotion was all about versatility. Any kind of music you want, anytime, anywhere. And the clouds are As the company moved beyond churches, it took off. By the mid-60s, Hammond had 3,000 employees and was considered a blue-chip stock. But then, in 1954, Hammond introduced its most famous and influential model, the B-3. Professional musicians may have loved the Hammond, but by the 1970s, the home market was losing ground to cheaper imports and the company was laying off employees. In 1973, Lawrence Hammond died. In 1975, the company built its last B3. And by 1985, the Hammond Organ Company was bankrupt. But today, the company is back, still in the Chicago area, but now owned by Suzuki Music of Japan. In 2003, Hammond Suzuki released what it calls the new B3. Well, it's too soon to know whether or not the new B3 will ever sell as well as the original Hammond organs, but what is clear is that those original organs created by a musically talentless inventor from Evanston have had a major and lasting impact on American music. And a great story, Jesse, a great find. And again, Lawrence Hammond was born on this day in history. And let's end where we began with Booker T and the MGs. is our American stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. 
And by the way, the headline of that article was nice trash can. Let's see what the bears think. And well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana. God's country, if ever there is in this great country. Among them, running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first. Your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from, from the uh, Montana border. Yep. And, and, yes, uh, I do have a dream job um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but, my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This is exactly. pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning, so still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this, as, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about, about Yellowstone and, and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But... Um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high. Um, and so it could snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August, um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach, and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you 
have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it, and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about, you know, the, 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 the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then, B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise, you're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low-com voice kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to, to obviously walk away, um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible that bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, and with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray. And, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their their eyes are watering. They're they're tearing. They're coughing, and uh, and then of course you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters. But yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, seven hundred grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there there are probably multiple sightings. I would assume. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. It's it's a, um, a a personal you know uh, uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears and whether it be a bison fifteen hundred pound bison have a a personal space just like a grizzly bear just like a moose and so if you get into that bear's personal space then you're threatening that bear and 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 perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them even even though you know we don't want to have anything to do with them and and so. Again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand. You want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer. And before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close, and then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get cl- too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Randy Gravatt. 
the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the bear safety product testing over at the Grizzly, Wolf, and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. between two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between three hundred and over a thousand pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter? And what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's um, you know in in North America we had the brown we have the brown bear which is also the grizzly bear and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food driven. Talk about those two things. Sure, they're they're very very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. And the problem lies that that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become around our houses, there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans. And, and so in, in, in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in, I would, I would assume, the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia. Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue it to expand into, into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods, 
Now there's a mall. Now there's a housing development, perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food. And why, didn't, why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, become the place uh, to test bear safety products? Where, where and how did that happen, Randy? Sure, sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee, and it's made up of a bunch of members, whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks. And, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population. Well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it. And it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler, a polycart trash can, a dumpster, uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it. So that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time. Most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you'll wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the, uh, I love Kabuk, or is it Kabuk? The Kobak, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Um, yeah, Kobuk uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobuk is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But, yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years, and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get in the most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands, we can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, Bear cannot do that. Um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, someway, Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the Destroyer, but um, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into, a, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year. All summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, 
uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre and a half habitat with two ponds with live fish. We take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out. Every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are uh, biting at it. They're chewing at it. They're rolling it around. They're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart, and, and yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do. They do, again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10, they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just uh, you know, it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps, they walk outside, it's dark, it's midnight, it's 11 o'clock, and they surprise mom and the cubs. Well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So uh, well, well taken, point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, Again, we're not-for-profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, Obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we do have what's called uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears, so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, 
and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, We're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Alexander Hamilton was born. And for the hour, we're going to spend some time with and talking about this remarkable historic figure. And you're going to hear from Ron Chernow, who wrote what is certainly the definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton, and the book that inspired, as you'll come to learn, the play on Broadway that is just sweeping actually the nation. You cannot get a ticket. Try as you may. I had some friends fly up around Christmas time, and I had urged them to see the play, and he ended up having to pay $400 a seat in order to see it. And he did, and he told me he was glad he did. Um, and now I'm helping him pay off the balance to a loan shark. It, it's it's worth the price of admission, folks. Get the play. And it's not, this is the kind of play, I saw it way back when it was being workshopped at the public theater. And it's the kind of play that is not contingent on a star. In fact, it is the kind of play that will make stars. And it is an unlikely cast. It's unlikely music. And it's stunning. And it tells you that the founding father's vision is alive and well. And that it touched a young writer of the caliber of the playwright of Hamilton all those years later. And that that book did is a remarkable story. And Hamilton's was a remarkable story indeed. He was an immigrant to the United States. One of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution. Something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. 
and he is one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis, and as Dick Gilder indicated, he had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. Again, to reiterate, his father abandons the family when Alexander is 11, mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13, he's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportion seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe how Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas. He's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down, and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, Kings being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the Revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's Churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives in what is upper Manhattan. Hamilton's strange studies? Take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes called from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. <laughs> so true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. 
Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And by the way, this day in history is brought to you by our sponsors and our partners at Hillsdale College, where, my goodness, you can actually learn stuff. Like Plutarch. Maybe not foreign currencies, but certainly Hamilton. You'll learn about the Federalist Papers. My goodness, you'll read them. You'll actually enjoy them. When we come back, more on the life of Alexander Hamilton, born on this day in history in 17... 17- 1755 the play itself. I have. I can't remember a play that got this kind of universal acclaim in my lifetime, actually. And all an accurate portrayal, by all means and by all accounts that I've read, of this remarkable life. And everybody says, oh, these, these old characters from the 18th century that founded this country, how boring, boring. Get a grip. Think about what it must have been like to be alive then. Think about what challenges these guys faced, who they were, who they were fighting, what they were putting together. We take all this stuff for granted, folks. None of it was here. And it wasn't there. Well, we're joined for the hour by Ron Chernow, who wrote the Alexander Hamilton biography entitled Alexander Hamilton. Pretty smart to just keep it simple. Chernow let the life story do the talking, and nobody is a better writer. Get this book. You can't put it down. The playwright couldn't. That's how these things happened. He was laying off vacationing, had just finished some kind of hip-hop musical, and who would have thought some kid would have connected with Hamilton and then turned that into a hip-hop musical, his life story. Why? By the way, all the characters, or most of them, many of them, the key ones, played by African-Americans. So this play, they play with race, with history, with time, with everything. It's wonderful. And Ron Chernow gave this talk back in 2004 to the New York Historical Society, and that's where we're going to bring you back to. And we love to do that here at Our American Stories. So let's talk about 
where we left off. And here's what Cherno had to say about how Hamilton is not too often portrayed. Now you'll hear it said, and very often it's taught this way in school, that Hamilton was a ferocious snob, that he was the stooge of the plutocrats of his day. In fact, it would be despot with Napoleonic ambitions. And of course, in this particular morality play of early American history, Thomas Jefferson is always represented as the pure and virtuous tribune of the people. Now, in the book, I don't entirely stand the stereotype um, on its head, but I do try to uh, argue both for Hamiltonians and even, dare I say, Jeffersonians, that the situation was far more complicated than that historical cartoon. Case in point, during the Revolutionary War, it is Hamilton, of course, who champions an audacious plan to emancipate any slave who's willing to pick up a musket for the Continental cause. In the 1780s, mid-1780s, it is Hamilton who co-founds the first abolitionist society in New York, the New York Manumission Society. In fact, the records, the minutes of those uh, meetings are actually upstairs in this very building where I did an enormous amount of research for the book. Remember that trading firm in St. Croix that I had uh, mentioned that Hamilton worked for as a teenager? That firm had imported up to 300 slaves per year from Western Africa, and it's clear from uh, subsequent actions that this first-hand experience of slavery left Hamilton with a permanent detestation of the system. In fact, Caribbean slavery was the most brutal in the world, even those who managed to survive the Middle Passage. Their life expectancy, uh, once they started working in the sugarcane breaks of the West Indies, was somewhere between three and five years. So you constantly have these poor people who are perishing in the fields, and the supply had to be constantly replenished. Hamilton, despite the historic stereotype, turns out to have been the most consistent abolitionist among the founders, bar none. I repeat, bar none. So when you look at the early history of the Republic through the lens of slavery, not the only way to look at it, but I think a significant way, Hamilton begins to look a little bit more like the populist, and Jefferson and Madison, who owned 200 and 130 human beings respectively, begin to look a little more like the privileged aristocrats. Indeed. And some would argue that Hamilton was the most ambitious of abolitionists. But it wasn't just blacks and the poor and the disenfranchised and the slaves who he had in his heart. Hamilton, it also turns out, had very enlightened views about Native Americans. Many in this audience will know that there is a college in upstate New York called Hamilton College. Well, the origins of that school, it started out as a secondary school that was supposed to educate Native Americans. Hamilton lent his name and his prestige to that undertaking. Hamilton turns out to have had very benign and enlightened views about Jews. He said in an unpublished paper that the success of the Jews could only be explained by special providence. So here's this man whom we're taught to regard as this ferocious snob who again and again shows himself as not only devoid of prejudice but with a special sympathy the oppressed. A special sympathy for the oppressed. And by the way, it makes perfect sense given his life background. And yet his appeal to the upper class and the appeal to making it that was there too. And this is not a contradiction, folks. You can do both. And he proved you could do both. So what about his role in helping form this little thing called our federal government? I think with the clear exception of George Washington, nobody did more than Alexander Hamilton to weld the 13 squabbling states into the powerful nation we know today. 
Hamilton personally drafts the first appeal for the Constitutional Convention. He attends it. He is the sole New York delegate to sign it. It is Hamilton who dreams up and then supervises the most influential defense of the document ever written, the Federalist Papers. Of those 85 essays, Hamilton manages to draft an astonishing 51. No less astonishing, there are periods where he's publishing them at a rate of as many as five or six per week. No less astonishing, he's doing it as a sideline. He had a full-time legal practice. Five to six of the Federalist Papers a week as a sideline. And by the way, as you hear different people of different political persuasions talk about this achievement, bringing all the states and delegates together in Philadelphia, remember, conservatives should remember this and Republicans, that the problem these men were trying to solve was actually bringing some consolidated power to Washington, D.C. Very difficult to wrap your heads around, but that was the case. We had 13 states with 13 different currencies. It wasn't working out, and there was no way to pay back war debt. So let's always remember these guys had nuanced opinions. There were battles going on between Hamilton and Jefferson, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists that we're going to learn about. We're still having these same discussions, folks, and these same arguments today because they're timeless arguments. But without Alexander Hamilton, as Ron Chernow said, and without George Washington, there is no America. There's just no way around it. And he wasn't born here. So it turns out this young, precocious guy, this incredible reader, this incredible and prolific writer, well, he liked to speak and write a whole lot. You could see where uh, the laconic Jefferson was quite understandably terrified of Hamilton's sheer brilliance. Uh, Hamilton was one of these frightening windbags whom you meet from time to time who can speak in perfectly worded paragraphs for hours on end, and Hamilton did. Hamilton also was one of these uh, intimidating characters who could and did toss off a 10,000-word opinion overnight for George Washington. And you could see in Jefferson's diary that he's really struggling with Hamilton. Uh, Quote, Hamilton made a speech of three-quarters of an hour in the cabinet today as if he had been speaking to a jury. The next day, Jefferson wearily records, Hamilton spoke again for three-quarters of an hour. (laughs) Hamilton was, quite frankly, a word machine. Hamilton wrote enough in 49 years to fill 22,000 pages in the latest edition of his collected papers. And your speaker this evening, I confess, was masochistic enough to read uh, every one of those pages. It is said that Harold Sirrett, who edited the papers for Columbia University Press, an outstanding job, um, Harold Sirrett evidently uh, used to joke that he intended to dedicate the many volumes to Aaron Burr, quote, without whose cooperation this project would never have been completed. (laughs) Uh, Nothing like a good history joke to get the history crowd going. And you'll learn if you don't know why that joke's funny. Well, we're not going to tell you right now, uh, but we will tell you in a bit. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton and what better man to tell it than the author of the definitive biography on Hamilton, Ron Chernow, and his 2004 discussion with the New York Historical Society. If you go to New York... Make sure you go there. It's as good as going to the Metropolitan Opera or the Beacon for a concert. Go there. The New York Historical Society. We're taking you there today. This again is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And we're going to hear more from Ron Chernow in a moment. This hour is brought to you by Hillsdale College. And at Hillsdale, you'll learn about folks like Alexander Hamilton. You'll read his works, particularly. Not someone's opinions about Hamilton, but Hamilton in his own words. It's really depressing when we got folks caricaturing our founders with their opinions and not exposing young and old people alike to the magic, the wisdom, and the genius of our founders. We're not America without a man like Alexander Hamilton, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And we wouldn't be the great country we are without him. And you also learn that a guy like this, the walking in History didn't know he was walking in history. It's a point that David McCulloch makes in a great speech in Hillsdale College. I think we're going to play it one day soon because it's so important. He's talking to all these students, and they're asking him essentially, what's it like writing about history? What what was it like studying these men? He said, well, the first thing I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is they didn't know they were making history. They weren't sitting around, he said, in their little white wigs going, oh, isn't it interesting, wearing these funny uniforms and these funny clothes and these wigs and getting ready for people to write stories about us. They were engaged in an epic struggle. They didn't know how the war was going to end. They didn't know whether there'd be a constitution. They had no idea what the outcome was going to be. And this is why I think we're bringing you Ron Chernow, because he actually manages, as he tells the story of Hamilton, to bring us right back there. And we don't know how it's going to end. I mean, we sort of do. We're living in America. We know it's a functioning democracy, I think. But then they didn't know, and they really didn't. And so we left you off with Ron Chernow at the New York Historical Society, one of the great institutions in the country, in Manhattan, talking about the life of Hamilton in 2004 because he had just dropped on the American public this great biography called Alexander Hamilton. And he dug into this speech a particular part of Hamilton's life. The Federalist Papers were written anonymously. And Chernow talks about the importance of anonymous speech for our founders, which surely caused folks like Thomas Jefferson real headaches. Even as Treasury Secretary, we find Hamilton dabbling in anonymous journalism under a bewildering variety of Roman pseudonyms. Hamilton launched one series of essays under the guise of Camillus, as well as Treasury Secretary, and then a simultaneous series called Philo Camillus that extravagantly heaps praise on the brilliance of Camillus. <laughs> when Washington, when um, Hamilton publishes some articles supporting uh, Washington's neutrality, Proclamation. Jefferson contacted James Madison and pleaded with him to rebut Hamilton in print. Quote, for God's sake, my dear sir, take up your pen, select the most striking heresies, and cut Hamilton to pieces. There is nobody else who can and will enter the list with him. There is nobody else in America who could enter the lists with Alexander Hamilton. And as you'll see from the book, even James Madison often shrank from the invitation. Wow. And James Madison was no lightweight. Jefferson wasn't either, but he was just way out of his league. Everyone was, as Chernow indicated. And by the way, just digging into that anonymous speech a bit more, you know, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously. And to this day, when you start to hear people 
question or ask who gave a donation to what or why, you always got to ask yourself why they're asking the question. Because Some people might just want to give to an organization anonymously for the precise reason that someone might be trying to punish them for that donation. And this anonymity in speech is a very rich tradition. Indeed, one of the worst cases in American history, the Alabama versus the state of Alabama versus NAACP, some white donors had given money to the NAACP. The state of Alabama came in and said, we want to know, NAACP, who gave that money. Now, the state of Alabama was up to no good. And thank goodness the Supreme Court upheld the anonymity of that donation. Because when the state's knocking on the door to try and figure out who you voted for or what you gave money to, no good could come of that. And here was Alexander Hamilton understanding that. And understanding, most importantly, it was the message that mattered, not the author. The message that mattered. Well, a little bit later, we get into, well, the, the really remarkable death of Alexander Hamilton. Because he's obviously killed in a duel. And Burr does the Burr does the killing, and well, here's Burr on killing Hamilton. Burr was never unduly disturbed by having killed Hamilton. He had a rather macabre sense of humor. He liked to refer jokingly, quote, to my friend Hamilton, whom I shot. <laughs> my friend Hamilton, whom I shot. And by the way, that happened in Weehawken, New Jersey, one town over from where my mom and dad met. And ultimately got married. And that is literally a stone's throw away. You can just look across the Hudson River. These spectacular views. It's worth going through the Lincoln Tunnel, going into that particular part of Weehawk, and there's a statue there. And you see the paces. You can see where these guys counted it off, turned around, and just shot at each other. Because, darn it, that's how men settled disputes back then. You can't even imagine it. And now when I hear, oh, my goodness, the political debates, they're just so hard. I go, oh, my goodness, read a little history. This is mild. We call each other some names, and then we go out to our press conferences and our our gaggles and off to a, a really nice dinner on K Street. Here's how Ron Chernow ended things in this really remarkable story of his own book in 2004 at the New York Historical Society. You have the entire early history of America wrapped up in this single personal drama. I would maintain that from Lexington and Concord in 1775 to at Jefferson's uh, first inauguration in 1801, nobody stood more consistently at the center of American political life than Alexander Hamilton. This is a story, an incredible story, of an illegitimate orphan young man who comes out of nowhere, sets the world on fire, and grows up quite literally alongside his adopted country. Thank you. Quite a talk, and you can just Google that and find it, by the way, and so much more. Chernow did a tour around that time. He also did a remarkable piece on C-SPAN. Go into their archives, type it, and pretty soon on ouramericannetwork.org, we will actually start linking the direct links and pictures of the video. So you can just go on there, and if you don't want to hear us blabber on, you go straight to the source itself and listen to that. Either way, no harm here. We're happy to serve you either way. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is our This Day in History feature. And we're talking about the life of Alexander Hamilton, his story, his prolific life. And again, 51 of the 85 essays that form the Federalist Papers were written by him. And look at this biography again. 
aide-de-camp to then-General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Some think he created the first bond. And what could we have ever done in this country without that? And what was it? And what what a financial genius. I wanted to leave with just one little thing. I'm reading 1776, and there's not much written in this book about Hamilton, but this little paragraph, which always caught my attention. It's about some battles, and here's what was written. Washington had reined in his horse and called off the pursuit. Another part of the army had entered the town where some 200 of the British garrison there had barricaded themselves inside the large stone main building of the cottage, Nassau Hall. When Captain Alexander Hamilton and his artillerymen fired a few rounds into the building, the Redcoats gave up. He was also a warrior, folks, in the heart of war, fighting the British when it mattered, with all on the line. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And each day we spend some time on our This Day in History segment. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's thirty, sometimes it's an hour. Hey, every once in a while, it's two hours. That's what Walt Disney demanded. We couldn't condense his story into an hour. It was too, well, just ridiculous. It was too absurd. And unless you spend two hours, you couldn't bring it all together because people would have thought we were lying all he did in his life. And today we're spending the hour on Alexander Hamilton. And all of this is brought to you by our great partners and our sponsor at Hillsdale College, one of the finest colleges in this country and the only one that I think digs in in the classical liberal arts tradition from the Western canon, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, straight through the Bible, all the way to the founders, everything in between, literature, art, philosophy, and political, political theory as well but that's last not least and you can go to hillsdale.edu and you can see all of their great online content because you don't have to send a child to hillsdale though i'd i would advise it if you would because it is a remarkable place to send your child they will come out to better for it and be well-prepared adults but hillsdale can come to you through their remarkable online courses and i've been talking earlier about the remarkable play in New York City, the musical Hamilton. And we wanted to play a little bit of music from it. And here is Guns and Ships. 
How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? Leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? Yo, turns out we have a secret weapon, an immigrant. You know and love who's unafraid to step in. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman! I'm taking this horse, metal rains, making red coats, weather with blood stains. Till I'm never gonna stop until I make a drop, I burn them up and scatter the remains down. Watch me engage in them, escaping them, and raising them out. I go to France for more fun. I come back with more guns and ships, and so their balance shifts. We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. We can end this war in Yorktown, cut them off at sea, but for this to succeed, there's someone else we need. I know. Those are the words of Lynn Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. He wrote the plot, music, lyrics, and even performs in it. I mean, it is stunning. And it makes you rethink rap. Whatever you might have thought about it, what was scat? Remember in the day when jazz scat artists were some of the most remarkable musicians? And I think he actually is trying to even save an art form itself. His rap didn't have to go the way it did with sort of sort of ghetto vulgarities. Didn't need to go that way. Oh, Alexander Hamilton, I have soldiers that will yield for you. If we manage to get this right, they'll surrender my early life. No world will never be the same. Alexander. Leah. Lebreska at 538.com, that's Nate Silver's blog, said this about the play. The use of rap helps Miranda pack more than 20,000 words into two and a half hours, roughly 144 words per minute. If Hamilton were sung at the pace of other Broadway shows I looked at, it would take anywhere between four and six hours. She found that the musical's fastest-paced verse from the song Guns and Chips clocked in at 6.3 words per second. So we wanted to dig into the archives here. And here's Ron Chernow, the author of Hamilton, talking about how he met Lin-Manuel Miranda. Let's take a listen. And he told me that uh, Lin-Manuel had read my Hamilton book and uh, <laughs> it made an enormous impression on him and he wanted to... To meet me, so I went to a matinee of um, In the Heights one Sunday, and he invited me backstage. And I said to him, "So I gather my book made an impression on you." And he said, "Ron, as I, w- I was reading it on vacation in Mexico, uh, and as I was reading it, hip hop songs started rising off the page." So I said, "Really? <laughs> uh, this is not a tip- wasn't what you were going for. This was not a this is not a typical reaction to one of my uh, books." And he asked me on the spot to be the historical consultant. Uh, and so I said to him, you mean you want me to tell you when something is wrong? And he said, yes. He said, I want historians to take this seriously, which I think they, they are. Wow. So how did Miranda and Chernow work together? That launched what has uh, been an amazing six-year uh, mm. process working with uh, him. 
And, you know, in the early period, we would have lunch and discuss Hamilton's psychology, mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, he would send me uh, via email every month one or two songs. I would just hear Lynn at the keyboard uh, playing it. And But then what happened, uh, once it started to go into various um, rehearsals and workshop productions, he would keep bringing me back in, and I would, I would have the uh, opportunity uh, afterwards to sit down for an hour or two and really uh, give him my um, uh, comments. And the comments, uh, some of the comments were... Um, if I thought something was factually mm-hmm. incorrect, although I have to say he's very well read, uh, and he was um, almost always aware when he was departing from right. the, uh, right. the fact. So even when he did depart from facts, it was just to merely advance a very condensed plot. You know, you're taking a man's whole life in a book that's hundreds and hundreds of pages, and you're condensing it into two and a half hours of entertainment. So. Let's hear more about this really unusual partnership. I think that there probably are a lot of historians and biographers who would not be entirely comfortable doing this uh, because you have to have some flexibility mm. uh, in terms of the requirements of uh, a show. I mean, here, you know, we were going from an 800-page book to a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. uh, musical, and my involvement uh, with the show made me realize uh, History is long, messy, and complicated. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, there's one thing that we all learn as historians is um, how difficult it is to generalize. The more you know, the more, uh, the more yeah. difficult it is to simplify some of this. That's what I've been telling them in Mount Vernon. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, a two-and-a-half-hour show yeah. Yeah. Um, has to be um, short and tight and, uh, you know, very... Um, uh, coherent. Short, tight, and coherent it is. Chernow then tells us about why Miranda sometimes needed to change stories about Hamilton, change them around to make the musical work. He would always have, I thought, a, a very plausible hmm. um, explanation of why he had changed something. I mean, I can just give you one, because uh, it comes right at the beginning of the show, um, that um, the show begins right at the start of the American Revolution, and he has uh, John Lawrence and uh, Lafayette in New York um, a year or two before he actually you know, meets them. So I said to him, Lynn, you know, you know he, mm-hmm. this is 1775, 76, but they didn't you know, meet Hamilton until 1777. Uh, but he wanted to, um, one of Hamilton's first friends when he came to New York was a tailor named Hercules Mulligan. Yeah. I think Lynn found the name irresistible. Uh, <laughs> and Lynn wanted to start um, a series of quartets that run through the first act of Hamilton with his friends Mulligan. Lawrence and uh, uh, Lafayette, which means that with Lawrence and Lafayette, he has to introduce them, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit earlier than they mm-hmm. appear. So, um, uh, you know, there are moments where you have to scramble the time sequence yeah. a little bit. There are moments where you sort of have to collapse, you know, different mm-hmm. events. And so it goes. And here's a Broadway talent teaching an historian a little bit about his craft and his medium. And here, finally, is Ron Chernow on why folks are loving the musical Hamilton. Manuel has done something extraordinary. He's made American history hip and cool and erudite at the same 
time, and only he could have uh, done it. Because very, very often, not mentioning any specific examples, when people in you know, a stage or screen uh, do the uh, founding era, yeah. they kind of dumb it down. They seem to start out with the uh, mm-hmm. assumption that this is boring, dated stuff. No one's really interested in this stuff. So we better have a lot of action. We better have a lot of cannons, you know, booming and muskets, you know, firing. We better try to, you know, spice it up with some sex. Um, but there's an underlying assumption that the, the contemporary audience is going to find boring. Uh, Lynn, instead of finding the history constraining, he finds the history liberating, mm. he finds it exciting. Mm-hmm. And the more deeply he gets into the history, that the more dramatic it's going to be. And I think the audience feels that. Mm. So this is like the um, uh, history class of a lifetime, mm. uh, seeing this uh, this show. And uh, we've had kids as young as 10 and 11 come down to see the show and just absolutely uh, adore it. And at the same time, you know, highly you know literate, uh, adults have, have seen it and took um, pleasure. They're kind of, you know, if you don't know anything about the period, you'll learn an enormous amount. If you do know a lot about the period. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, we believe this too here at our show that if you just tell the story, people will be interested in it. And we're going to continue telling these great stories from our past because they are lock solid and here in our present, alive and kicking. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it's all brought to you by Hillsdale College.